This week on Infosex Inc., data wiping malware targets Europe. Mike Pence uses AOL email. Researchers uncover a PowerShell Trojan that uses DNS queries to get its orders. And Apache Strut's vulnerability is exploited in the wild. We discuss websites and the SHA-1 algorithm. And Bechtel opens a cybersecurity lab. So get ready to get in sync with Infosex Inc. Hello, and welcome to the 32nd episode of the InfoSec Sync podcast, where we keep you in sync with the ever-changing world of information security. I'm your host, Matt Morris. And I'm your host, Nick Thomas. And give us 60 minutes, and we will keep you on top of the latest security news and help you gain CPEs while tuning in. InfoSec Sync is brought to you by VicTech. At VicTech, they pride themselves on teamwork, customer satisfaction, and providing customers with elite engineering and technology solutions. They aim to become an ever more dominant force in every area, product, or service they represent. Visit them on the web at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And now, for stories of the week, ending March 10th, 2017. What, what up, up InfoSexing Info fam? All right, we got a number of things to jump into this week. Uh, last week was pretty good. We had Nottingham's. Yeah, we, uh, uh, we're we glad people came out and uh, supported us for that. It was a good happy hour. Um, it was free drinks, right, Matt? It was free <laughs> drinks and food, so it was a lot of fun. Um, shout out to our sponsor, um, Vic, with Vic Tech. Um, that was awesome. And, uh, yeah, everybody that came out had a good time. Um, got a lot of, lot of good positive reviews, and uh, we just got to keep it moving. Cool. So, do you want to start with the stories this week? Yeah, so uh, first story, big story of the week, Shamoon. Shamoon is back. This hard drive will self-destruct. Data wiping malware targets Europe. Meaner strain of Shamoon makes comeback, joined by new never-before disk wiper. So Shamoon, the mysterious disk wiper that popped up out of nowhere in 2012 and took out more than 35,000 computers in a Saudi Arabian-owned gas company before disappearing, is back. The newer meter design has been unleashed three times since November. What's more, a new wiper developed in the same style as Shamoon. This has been discovered targeting a petroleum company in Europe where wipers used in the Middle East have not previously been seen. Um, researchers from Moscow-based uh, Kaspersky Lab have dubbed the new wiper Stone Drill. They found it while they were researching the trio of Shamoon attacks, which occurred on two dates in November and one date in late January. The refurbished Shamoon 2.0 added new tools and techniques, including less uh, reliance on outside command and control servers, a fully functional ransomware module, and a new 32-bit and 64-bit uh, component. So what I think is cool about that is the less reliance on outside command and control servers. So um, they're programming these things to think for themselves without having to rely on a way back. So uh, Stone Trail, meanwhile, features an impressive ability to evade detection by, among other things, foregoing the use of disk drivers during installation. So to accomplish this, it needs a, a wiping module into the computer memory associated with the user's preferred browser, browser so Chrome, um, IE, uh, Firefox. Um, so 
they use the associated preferred browser and stone drill also includes backdoor functions that are used for espionage purposes the Kaspersky researchers found four command and control panels that the attackers used to steal data from an unknown number of targets. And besides sharing code similarities with Shamoon, Stone Drill also reuses code used in an espionage campaign dubbed News Beef, which targeted organizations around the world. The discovery of the Stone Drill Wiper in Europe is a significant sign that the group is expanding its destructive attacks outside of the Middle East. This comes from Kaspersky Lab researchers and what they wrote in a uh, report that they published on Monday. The target for the, for the attack appears to be a large corporation with a wide area of activity in the petrochemical sector with no apparent connection or interest in Saudi Arabia. So, oil and gas. <laughs> wow, right? <who> knew? <laughs> Um, That's where the, the money's at. Yep, yep. The researchers still don't know precisely what uh, connection Stone Drill has with Shamoon. Uh, the most plausible relationship that they said is that it each belongs to two different hacking groups that are aligned in their interest. And this theory is consistent with the discovery that Stone Drill contains support for Arabic Yemen language, while Shamoon contains mostly Persian language support. The Persian speaking Iran and Yemen are both players in the Iran-Saudi Arabia proxy conflict is what the researchers noted in their report on Monday. They also noted the possibility that one or both of the embedded language sections are false flags intended to mislead investigators about the origins of the malware. Another possibility is that Stone Drill is a less used wiper that's deployed in certain situations by the same group that uses Shamoon. And it's also possible that Stone Drill and Shamoon are used by two different groups that have no connection to each other and just happen to target Saudi organizations at the same time. Uh, Stone Drill came to the attention of Kaspersky Labs as researchers were investigating the recent wave of Shamoon attacks. Part of their probe involved the use of a malware hunting tool known as Yara. The researchers initially thought that a detection rule they wrote uncovered a new Shamoon variant. And after deeper analysis, the researchers found that the malware was a distinct, never-before-seen wiper, which they dubbed Stone Drill. Like the Shamoon strain from 2012, the newer version burrows into a targeted network so that attackers can contain uh, administrator credentials. And Shamoon 2.0 allows the attackers to build a custom wiper that uses the credentials to spread widely inside the organization. And then on a set date, the wiper activates and quickly leaves the infected machines completely inoperable. The final stages of the attacks are automated, a feature that eliminates the need for communication with command and control servers. Um, they did note, though, the researchers, that they still don't know how Stone Drill spreads. The newly refurbished Shamoon, its newly discovered companion Stone Drill, and the first known foray into Europe are all evidence that the Middle East connected wiping campaign, despite its almost five-year hiatus, is anything but dead. So don't be surprised if it pops up again in the coming months or years or coming to a server near you. Yeah, most definitely. So a couple of interesting things here. So with the Yara rule that they wrote, it sounds like they were able to detect a Shamoon variant, what they think to be a Shamoon variant. Right. I think that it kind of ties in with what we were talking about last week with code reuse so it may potentially be the same group it may be a different group i think they're using the same ttps and in this case they're using the same 
um, software or malware in this case um, okay. to execute on the box. So I did a little bit of digging with um, Yara and they have um, a kind of overview of Yara on InfoSec Institute. So they say Yara is a popular tool that provides a robust language, which is compatible with Perl-based regular expressions and is used to examine the suspected file directories and match strings as defined in the Yara rules uh, with the file. So it's a very simple syntax to write the Yara rules. Um, and so it has two sections on the Yara rule. First is the string section, which contains a string pattern signature that needs to match against a particular file. The string section is optional, but can be left out if necessary. And then in Yara, there are three types of strings, a hex string, a wildcard, and a jump. And then okay. the text strings are in form of ASCII, which is then matched up with the condition set. And so then the regular expression, starting from version 2.0, Yara has its own regex engine, which mostly um, resembles PCRE, right? So those regular expressions there. And the Yara regular expressions can be followed by any of the text strings mentioned above. Then it has conditions. But the cool thing is Yara can be integrated with the ClamAV rule database. So they have a set of um, steps that you can integrate ClamAV rules with Yara. You just download ClamAV to a Yara Python script then you download and unpack the ClamAVDB, and then you run ClamAV to Yara Python script. Now you convert the rules. So it's it's cool stuff, and it looks like they have a lot of support for it. And they say that the limitations are, um, while reading this, most of you have felt, considering how sophisticated malware has become these days, Yara detection can be easily bypassed since Yara only does a pattern string signature matching, whereas a more effective method of detecting malware is available, i.e. behavior analysis. I totally agree that Yara has its limitations, but with other features add um, and support, Yara is a necessary tool for analyzing malicious files. So it's cool stuff. Um, I thought I'd add that in there um, to give a little bit of background on how they and Yara is free it. too, so a lot of people use it. Yeah, um, so it's definitely something to add to the toolkit. I mean, I think knowing how to write Yara rules is kind of like knowing how to write Snort rules. Our rules, yeah. Yeah, so you know, it's never a bad thing to know it. Um, but in this case, it looks like they detected a potential Shamoon variant with Yara. So cool so stuff. Good work on Kaspersky. Yeah, most by definitely. Kaspersky. <laughs> by Kaspersky, yeah. So great stuff. So Mike Pence, the new VP. Yeah, man. Right? Mike Pence. What's up with Mike Pence? We're pencing it up right now. So <laughs> um, Mike Pence used an AOL email account for state business and it got hacked. Yeah, um, that was big news this week. Yep. So as a candidate, the Trump VP um, kind of castigated Clinton for use of the private email server, kind of bashed her about it. But... Um, as the U.S. Republican vice presidential candidate, Mike Pence vigorously chastised Hillary Clinton for using a personal server to send and receive official emails while she was Secretary of State. Not only was the arrangement an attempt to escape public accountability, he said, but it also put classified information within dangerous reach of hackers. So now comes revelations that Pence routinely uses a private AOL account to conduct business. <laughs> government business. While he was a governor of Indiana and that the account was hacked last summer, just months before he um, turned the heat on his Democratic rival over her personal email server. 
So use of the email of the AOL account for state business came to light in a 2100 word article published Thursday evening by the ND Star. The news outlet based its report on emails it received under a public records request. State officials deci- declined to release an unspecified number of emails because the state considers them confidential and too sensitive to release to the public. Then why were they on AOL? Yeah. But um, Pence used the account starting in the mid-1990s. So he was one of those with the AOL disc. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and he probably still had the ringtone, You've Got Mail. Right? Oh, yeah. did you get the new one? It just came in the mail today. 7 man. It's out. Yeah. Seven zero. Do you do you know what the closest uh, phone number is that we can call for the fifty six k? Oh dang! So um, so it started in the mid nineteen nineties and continued using it until it was hijacked in twenty sixteen. Not a bad run, not a bad run since nineteen ninety, and the password has probably never changed. Probably, I don't know. It doesn't say in here, but it's probably Pence for Prez since the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> That's too funny. So three years into Pence's four-year tenure as governor, the news outlet um, reported that you know he had it for that many years. So the hackers who compromised the account used it to send a scam email to Pence's contacts, falsely claiming that the governor and his wife were stranded in the Philippines and were in urgent <laughs> need of financial assistance. Pence then abandoned that account and opened a new AOL account. <laughs> this just gets better. So the ability of hackers to access Pence's contact list means they almost certainly gained access to Pence's inbox and outbox. The hack of Pence's accounts came um, two years after the AOL said an unknown number of its mail accounts had been compromised and directed all users to change their passwords. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Somebody's in trouble. So the scam email sent to Pence's contact suggests he... Uh, the hack was part of a broad opportunistic attack rather than one targeted at Pence in particular, i.e. spear phishing. Right. So since there's no way to rule out that more covert and targeted hacks also penetrated his accounts, you know, you kind of have to take that with a grain of salt. So during Pence's four years as governor, emails obtained by the Indy Star Show, he used the account to discuss official government business, including matters considered sensitive and security related. Correspondence among Pence... His then chief of staff, Jim Allerholt, and his top public safety and homeland security advisor, John Hill, discussed subjects including Pence's efforts to prevent the resettlement of Syrian refugees and the state's response to a a shooting at Canada's National Parliament building. Wow. So much or all of the information was reported in the news media, but it remains unclear what was discussed in the emails that officials declined to release. Release. (laughs) Release. So, personal emails aren't immediately captured on state servers that are searched in response to public records requests, raising questions about transparency. As the Indy Star reported, and I quote, Indiana law requires all records dealing with state business to be retained and available for public information requests. Emails exchanged on state accounts that are captured on state servers, which can be searched in response to such requests. But in any emails... Pence sent from his AOL account to another private account likely would have been hidden from public record searches unless he took steps to make them available. So Indiana Public Access Counselor Luke Britt, who was appointed by Pence in 2013, says he has advised all state officials to copy or forward their emails involving state business to their government accounts to ensure that the record is preserved on state servers. Why don't they just use the accounts to begin with? I don't know. But I, I have a potential reason why what's that 
because the state servers that are there probably don't have the necessary integration for the wearables and for the mobile devices. Um, and they're I probably mean, unpatched. Well, yeah, but <laughs> if you're if you're a governor or something like that, you don't care if it's unpatched. You care that I can't get it on my BlackBerry or my iPhone or my Android device, and it doesn't integrate well. They don't care that it's like IMAP or you know what pop three. pop three on the back end. They're not doing the configuration, and that's probably why they just want to use uh, like an AOL or Gmail account because it's very easy setup. You kind of yeah, set it yep. and go, but plausibly, right? right? So there is no indication that, but. Another thing I want to say, with Luke Britt saying that, saying he advises state officials to copy or forward their emails involving state business to their government accounts, means that they knew that they were using the other services. So, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, all right, I know you guys are doing bad things, but we need this bad things in sense of using a Gmail, AOL, Yahoo, um, to conduct official business, but make sure you just BCC your uh, everyone else <laughs> your state uh, email so we have a record of it. Thank you. Have a nice day. But anyways, there is no indication that Pence took any such steps to preserve AOL emails until he was leaving the governor's office. So when public officials fail to retain their private account emails pertaining to public business, they're running the risk of violating the law. Britt said, "A good steward of those messages and best practices is going to dictate." They preserve those. All of the emails provided to IndyStar, part of the US t- USA Today network, were ones captured on the state servers. The emails were obtained after a series of public records requests that Pence administration did not fulfill for nearly four months before Pence left office. The administration of Pence's successor, Governor Eric Holcomb, released 29 pages of emails late this past week. But it withheld others, saying they are deliberate or advisory, confidential under the rules adopted by Indiana Supreme Court or the work product of an attorney. Holcomb's office declined to disclose how many emails were withheld. To be sure, Pence is by no means the only governor or government official to use a personal email account to discuss official government business. True. But what sets him apart, however, was his fierce criticism of Clinton for her use of the private email server to conduct official State Department business. In late October, for instance, shortly after the FBI Director James Comey reopened an investigation into Clinton's email practices, Pence issued a treat or a tweet <laughs> praising <laughs> the move a treat, right? Um, because no one is above the law. So um, this was back October 2016, and not only that, but he had his location settings enabled. So he was in Smith Mil- Smithfield, North Carolina. Anyways, what he said was dot. At real Donald Trump and I commend the FBI for opening an investigation into Clinton's personal email server because no one is above the law. Uh-huh. Pot calling the kettle black, right? But yeah. um, that's okay. And, uh, yeah, I got 20,507 likes. We need those amount of likes on our podcast episodes. <laughs> so, listeners, like hit that like button. But anyways... Uh, Indiana law, according to Thursday's report, doesn't bar public officials from having private email accounts, but is generally interpreted as requiring any official business conducted through private email to be retained for public record purposes. Oh, so they are allowed to do it, apparently. So Pence's office said his campaign hired outside counsel as he was departing as governor to review his AOL emails and transfer any involving public business to the state. There's no indication he took any such step to preserve his AOL emails prior to his departure. Wow. So, okay. kind of, 
a lot of information there. Um, just one of those things where the state government needs to catch up to my thing is why don't they just adopt these service providers because they have like google apps for government and all these different applications that could enable them to adopt like gmail and things of that nature with the gov accounts and then they can offload that off to another service yeah you can offload that to another service provider and yeah. you can still get it accredited in AT or get you know if you have the risk management framework you can still get, get that accredited yeah so why don't they just do that as a cost thing because it's going to save money in the long run you don't have to maintain the servers what I think it ultimately is is not wanting to relinquish the control to a service provider because they have the private emails but yeah. I don't know I guess there's kind of a level of what is confidential at a state level right um you know, it's, I know the, the waters are murky there, but it's something you can work out with a service level agreement and you could encrypt and you could keep the key for all storage that they have, like where they store the emails, the service provider and stuff and things of that nature. So you completely offload it and you no longer have to maintain it. And not only that, but it enables the usability of people securely using it from their devices. I don't know. Good Pretty thought. interesting. Yeah, but... I- I don't know. I guess availability. So confidentiality and integrity are high, right? And availability is low for a state system, but the availability is high on the user's part. They want to be able to get to this information, their email accounts from anywhere. They want to access it from a device, from a browser, from wherever they're at. But they're... They want to be able to control it. Right. But they're kind of... Um, thoughts on confidentiality and integrity is they don't care. It just has to be convenient. It just got to be there when they want it. Right. It's that convenient security paradigm. So I don't know. It's pretty interesting. Or convenience and usability, which is impeded by security. That would probably <laughs> be a more accurate statement. But so what do we got, Nick? What's next? Uh, actually, we're going to take a break and come right back. VicTech provides information assurance solutions that result in higher efficiency and protection in defense of their clientele. Their expertise in information security controls and the CNA processes, such as the Risk Management Framework, NIST 837, and supporting lifecycle processes, is why commercial and government entities trust and rely on their solutions. VicTech combines innovative business practices and strategies with their technical expertise and base their own success on customers achieving their goals. Visit them on the web today at VicTech.net. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net. And we're back. What's up? Awesome break. Um, so, yeah. What do you got, Nick? All right. For our next story, uh, researchers uncover a PowerShell Trojan that uses DNS queries to get its orders delivered by secure Word doc. Pure PowerShell malware fetches commands from DNS TXT records. Uh, Researchers at Cisco's Talus Threat Research Group are publishing research today on a targeted attack delivered by a malicious Microsoft Word document that goes to great lengths to conceal its operations. Based entirely on Windows PowerShell scripts, the remote access tool communicates with the attacker behind it through a service that is nearly never blocked, DNS, port 53. The malware was first discovered by a security researcher, he goes by at Simpo13, who alerted Talos because of one peculiar feature of the code that he discovered. 
It called out Cisco's source fire security appliances in particular with the encoded text. And I quote, source fire sucks. That's S-U-X. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> Delivered as an email attachment, the malicious word document was crafted, quote, to appear as if it were associated with the secure email server that is secured by McAfee. Um, and this was by Talos researchers Edmund Brummigan and Colin Grady in a blog post um, they're posting today. Once open, the document launches a visual basic for applications and macro. Hold on, hold on, stop right there. Mm -hmm. Public service announcement. Yes. Do not enable editing on documents <laughs> that Why you not, receive Matt? from the internet because you have to Why make not? it a tr you have to make it a trusted document. So oh. when you when you make it a trusted document and enable macros. That should be like step one of a user. Well, I probably shouldn't enable these macros. You can edit a document, just do file, save as, or whatever, but do not enable macros. Anyways, sorry to cut in, but it's like the worst thing ever. Why would you, <laughs> you do that? Or you could co copy paste to another secure or quote secure uh, document and save it as, as that without the macros in it. Yeah, you could. Uh, just, just food for thought. Cool. Yeah. Okay, once open, the document launches a Visual Basic for Applications macro, which was previously spotted and posted to Pastebin, apparently by Microsoft Threat Intelligence Center General Manager John Lambert, to launch PowerShell commands to install the backdoor onto the system. The hash listed in the Pastebin led us to a malicious Word document that had also been uploaded to a public sandbox. The Word document initiated the same multiple-stage infection process as the file from the hybrid analysis uh, report they previously discovered and allowed them to reconstruct a more complete infection process. The VBA script unpacks a compressed and obfuscated second stage of PowerShell, which determines whether the user who let loose the malware had administrative access and what version of PowerShell, PowerShell is installed on the system. It then makes changes to the Windows registry and installs a third stage, a PowerShell script that acts as a discrete, simple backdoor. If the user does have administrative access, the installer PowerShell then adds the backdoor to the WMI database, the Windows Management Instrumentation Database, allowing it to stay persistent on the system after reboot so it will always be there. The backdoor periodically makes DNS requests to one of a series of domains hard-coded into the script. As part of those requests, it, ret it retrieves TXT records from the domain, which contain further PowerShell commands, commands that are executed but never written to the local system. This fourth stage script is the actual remote control tool used by the attacker. Stage four is responsible for querying the command and control servers via DNS TXT message request to ask what commands to execute. Uh, one of the researchers, Edmund Brummigan, told ARS through email, quote, if a command is received, it is then executed, and the output or results of the command are communicated back to this command and control server. This basically gives the attacker the ability to execute any Windows or application commands available on the infected host. Just what sort of malicious commands the attacker was using this DNS backdoor to execute isn't known. We were unable to get the command and control infrastructure to issue us commands during their testing. Given the nature of this attack, it is likely that the attackers would only issue active command and control commands to their intended target. 
The irony of this particular attack calling out Sourcefire is that Cisco has just relaunched Umbrella, a service it acquired with Open, D with Open DNS, a product that is intended to shield from DNS exploits precisely like this. Wow, very interesting. Yeah. So it's funny how they said, okay, what's out there on a network that's persistent, that's always open, that nobody really looks at? DNS. Because you're focused on that DNS server, any transfers that are happening, mm -hmm. zone transfers and things of that nature. You're always trying to secure that DNS zone transfer. Right. But the thing is, you're not really worried about the client communication to the DNS server because you kind of assume that if it's communicating to the DNS server over it's supposed to do that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's supposed to do that. It's a normal activity. Um, so yeah, very interesting stuff. But as part of it says, as part of those requests, it retrieves text records from the domain. So does that mean the domain it was querying was kind of set up to the malicious return? domain? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> wow. Very interesting yeah. stuff. So even if you secure the endpoint. And secure the DNS server. This is a normal operation it's of a, a normal DNS operation. server. Correct. So really, what you have to do is you have to block anything going out to. No, actually, nothing's really going to the server. It's pulling. It's coming from DNS. Right. Wow. And you're, so... trust, you're trusting your. You're trusting the DNS server, um, but you know if it's not yours, you're trusting that. And we trust it every day, right? You you go home, you type in Google.com Google or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't know all the IPs to all the stuff that I'm accessing. Right. Um, but, yeah, so open DNS. We're going to have to look more into that. You know, it definitely would be interesting. But, um, yeah, they did, they did um, purchase that. So, cool stuff. And then Sourcefire was a local company. Yes. Before they got bought by uh, Cisco. Cisco. So, real cool stuff. They were right there in Columbia. We have Tenable there, too. Shout out to Tenable. Shout out to Tenable. We'll be uh, talking here soon, hopefully. We'll see what happens. Little little nugget <laughs> thrown out there. We'll see. Little salt sprinkle. All right. <laughs> so, next story. So, a high-severity remote code execution vulnerability affecting Apache Struts 2 framework has been exploited in the wild warns Cisco's Talos Intelligence and Research Group. They've been busy. Mm. So the vulnerability tracked as CVE 2017-5638 can be triggered when performing file uploads with the Jakarta, or Jakarta multi-part parser. The security hole caused due to improper handling of the content type header allows a remote unauthenticated attacker to execute OS commands of the targeted system. So this flaw affects struts 235 through 2331, struts 25 through 2510, and it was addressed on March 6 with the release of 2.3.32 and 2.5.10.1. So Cisco Talos spotted the first exploitation attempts on March 7th, shortly after someone published a proof of concept exploit. According to researchers, a majority of the exploitation attempts leveraged the publicly available um, proof of concept code. Do I hear shell shock? Yep. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of the same deal that happened with Shellshock. It got released and everybody and their mother was trying to throw it against servers. But either way, some of the attacks involve execution of simple Linux commands, of a simple Linux command, likely in an effort to determine if a target system is vulnerable. Again, you already know what I'm going to say with that. 
So researchers have observed the use of commands such as who am I and if config, which allowed attackers to see what users running the service and gather information on the network configuration. More sophisticated attacks, threat actors stopped the Linux firewall, downloaded a malicious payload from a web server, and executed that payload. Cisco said the payloads included IRC bouncers, Denala service bots, and Bill Gates malware. And the Bill Gates malware. What's funny is it's executed against Linux systems. So, anyways... In other attacks, hackers also attempted to make the malware persistent by copying it to a benign folder where it would get executed on a system boot. These attacks also involved disabling the firewall service on boot. A lot of disabling of firewall services. Got to make that persistent. So it is likely that the exploitation will continue in a wide scale since it is relatively trivial to exploit. And there are clearly systems that are potentially vulnerable, said Cisco's Nick Biasini. Biasini said many of the compromised websites have already taken steps to clean the infection. Users are advised to update their Apache Strut installations as soon as possible. Qualys also published a blog post and a security advisory for this vulnerability. Wow, okay. So it's still going on then? Yeah, it's still ongoing. Make sure that if you're using Apache Struts, you're patching your stuff. Patched Uh, up Apache. Yeah, so (laughs) my thing is, I guess... They were disabling the host-based firewall because of the fact that these systems are connected to the internet. So, it's, I guess, if you have, you know, the system within a DMZ behind a firewall, you could have kind of. Actually, no, it's all going over. If you had like a blacklist or something like that, or if you were able to know that those were malicious sites that it was going out to, with an IDS or something of that nature, or an IPS in this case you could block that from happening. But it's, you know, nine times out of ten, if a system's connected to the Internet like that, they're just going to try to execute code on there, pull down a stager malware, or communicate with a C2 server. Something's going to happen um, for the successive stages. But we've seen this before with Shellshock, Heartbleed, all of these different vulnerabilities in the past. And it's one of those things where it's a race to patch. So if you have good configuration management, you... The goal is to shorten the amount of time that it can affect your enterprise. And if that attack surface is out there, number one, and you have a vulnerability that's affected by an exploit that's out there, that is the recipe for disaster. You should already know what the attack surface is. You should already know what the theater is looking like, what, you know, the scenario of the landscape of where your servers are in place with the Internet not only that, but you should have good configuration management to know what software is running on those systems. And let's say you have a weekly um, patch cycle, right? Now that's seven days that that system could have potentially been out there. But a lot of people focus on configuration management as being the band-aid for everything. There has to be a subclause to configuration management. You have to have a threat intelligence group that's actually looking, that's part of the SOC, and is looking at reports like this that come out so you can kind of accelerate that patch cycle within the configuration management process for systems that are on the attack surface, which would be the front end, that are affected by this particular vulnerability. So definitely very interesting stuff, but we've seen this crap before. And you stick around long enough in information security or IT in general, you start seeing the same stuff over and over and over again. Yeah, it's funny you say that, Matt, because just uh, today, actually, I uh, had to talk about 
having a threat intelligence person or group mm -hmm. um, at one of my um, clients mm -hmm. and, and preach to them about what that means to get ahead of their patching because you said a week. Some people don't do a week patching. They do like 30 days. Yeah, it's bad. And then when we, I think it was a few episodes ago when we went over the Cisco report, state of state of the sock, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. And it was like, um, for a breach, it it can go undetected for up to two hundred and thirty days. It was like something bizarro like yeah. that. What the hell? <laughs> so, <laughs> I hate to say that, but now you've had an attacker come in, remain persistent. Exfil information or whatever they're doing, right? Poning your entire environment, and it goes undetected because either the root cause is a negligent user mm -hmm. or unpatched software. It boils down to that. Unless you have somebody on the inside or whatever that, you know. True, unless there's insider threat. Yeah, but let's take that out of it, right? Okay. Um, it's negligent user or unpatched software. So. How do you handle which one? Which one's with, worse, right? Yeah, which one's worse? A <laughs> user that's enabling macros or <laughs> an, uh, a system with unpatched Apache struts? <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, very interesting. Um, so yeah, it's, it's cool stuff. I think threat intelligence is very critical for any organization. It's often overlooked. SOC managers are worried about the daily operations, right? Putting out the fires. That's why the security operations center is there. Um, if you're lucky enough to have a security operations center, um, nine times out of 10, it's connected to the knock, uh, or it's just a knock and you have individuals that are like looking at, um, IP fix data or like net flow data and mm -hmm. making sure that, you know, they're looking at like, um, kind of SNMP, you know, making sure everything sure stuff's up. up and working, you know, making yeah. sure that, uh, the malware's coming in and going out like it needs to. <laughs> yeah, normal activities as normal, right? But yeah. we take it to the next level. We can kind of put a sock in there, right? Have an IDS, have a monitor the IDS, do some triage, kind of figure out, all right, we have systems that are infected and kind of figure out a way forward with that and have a good incident response program in place. But the next step after that, full maturity, is having a threat intelligence group. Mission number one is to look at what's out there as in any open source reports, such as what Cisco and Qualys was putting out. And then the next step of that would be to develop your own internal threat intelligence. And that requires use of kind of what we talked about last week with Dave Topper, with, um, with Splunk or ArcSight or something, right? To where you have an idea of the info that's being fed from a security standpoint, how you can correlate that and look for some O-days that are out there or some systems that have been hit by some advanced malware that nobody else may be looking at. That is a fully mature SOC with a great security program. And that's a lot of money to do that. But at a minimum, you should have one or two members on the NOC team that are looking for anomalous behavior. Whether that's misconfigs or malware, it's kind of up to you. But um, which one's worse, a misconfiguration with a system that's being noisy on the network or a system that's malicious and can potentially infect other systems? Uh. You know, it all depends upon what the CIO, the CISO want to do. Um, but, yeah, you could go a lot of ways with it. But threat intelligence is definitely very critical to the success of any organization, making sure their stuff is protected. Cool. So what's next? Uh, next, we're going to talk about certi uh, certificate authorities. 
<laughs> you know what those are, right, Matt? <laughs> I do, CAs. Yeah, so while most CAs haven't been issuing certificates using the SHA-1 cryptographic oh, no. hash function... Are we talking about months. we're talking about SHA one again? Talk about SHA one. This is the third time we've talked about SHA one. Yep. One in five websites worldwide still use the certificates, according to uh, Venify. Not, not, o- <laughs> not only did CAs migrate to the more uh, secure SHA two certificates on January first of this year, twenty seventeen, but major browser makers also decided to adopt the change, including Google, Microsoft, and Mozilla. And their browsers no longer trust sites that use SHA-1 certificates. Even Facebook announced plans to retire SHA-1. That's good, Facebook. Mm-hmm. Despite that, many webmasters are still behind with the transition, as 21% of all websites that use certificates still use the insecure cryptographic hash function. Venify says, based on the analysis of over 33 million publicly visible IP4 websites, granted, Things are looking much better compared to that last fall when 35% of the websites were still using SHA-1. But recent research has proven that the crypto function is officially broken. I mean, we, we all know about that. Yeah, we covered that two episodes ago. SHA-1 has been long said to be vulnerable to collision attacks, but it wasn't until this year that the function was proven uh, fundamentally broken. Um, what's surprising, however, is that webmasters didn't transition to SHA-2 or SHA-3 or SHA-3 sooner. It's doubtful that they would knowingly uh, leave their sites vulnerable. Um, here's a quote from uh, from Venify, um, Shelley Boos. I, uh, I suspect that many orgs may simply be unaware that they still have any SHA-1 certificates on their networks because they're relying on certificate authority tools to manage their keys and certificates. The problem with this approach, especially now that free and very low-cost certificates are widely available, is that anyone in your organization can get and install a certificate that uses weak hash algorithms and install it on your network. Shouldn't be able to do that, you know? No, not a good idea. How are you how are you root and able to do that? In addition to making both websites and their users vulnerable to attacks, the continuous use of SHA-1 can also disrupt the browsing experience because web browsers display warnings when encountering insecure sites, prompting users to look for alternatives. The green padlock that browsers display to mark HTTPS transactions will no longer be associated with SHA-1 sites, and performance issues might also um, alter users' experience, Venify notes. So two things. First thing is alter user's experience. I don't think it's going to alter the user experience at all. What I think it's going to do is it's going to make the user numb to the fact that they have blaring warnings coming at them because of SHA-1 certs. They're just, just going to click through them? They're going to click through them, just like yeah. if you have self-signed certificates. Self-signed <laughs> certificates are a bad idea. I understand if you have a test dev um, organization that you know, you're, you're putting up a lot of stuff and kind of testing things out, you'll have self-signed certs, right? But for the most part, if you're doing a man in the middle and you're expecting the user to click through and accept that self-signed certificate, not good if you train the user to just blazingly go through and, okay, I don't have a green padlock, but it still works, so it must Wait, be good. this is the same user that uh, enabled the macros last last uh, session, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. So they've already been pwned from that. Now they're on a man in the middle, right? But um, I think it's going to... When you say alter the user experience, I don't think it's going to alter the user experience because, yes, it may 
kind of pop something up to them that doesn't look good. What I think it's going to do is it's going to establish bad user hygiene. Oh, I like that term. Yes. Bad user hygiene. You're, you're correct. I mean, I know they have cyber hygiene and all that. I hate the word. I want to get away from it. But the thing is, what's a better way to describe this? So now we have to kind of change our user awareness training to incorporate. That was my next point. Yeah. So you're going to have to incorporate that. And a lot of users don't know anything about certificates. No. And they don't care to know. Now, second thing. So you said that with this approach, especially now that free and very low cost certificates are widely available, anyone in your organization can get and install a cert that uses weak hashing algorithms and install right. it on your network. You should be doing application whitelisting. That is step one. So therefore, if I have an app that I'm installing to pull down a new cert and install it, if I'm modifying that, you should have your systems locked down so it can't happen especially on a production system that's on your network. Oh, man, you should have like a self-healing endpoint or something. I know. <laughs> but either way, you're now allowing... I can understand if it's a developer, right? Um, if you have a negligent developer, not a good not a good, you know, thing happening there. But in this case, so if a user is installing a certificate on their host to do something... Um, Okay, I can understand PKI based authentication for SSH or you know putting it in the browser to hit uh, server over four four three whatever right. But if you're enabling a server to have a lower hashing algorithm, a weak um, hashing algorithm with a lower um, SHA one cert, not a good idea. So yeah, not right, a good so culmination of things. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. VicTech is a leader in developing security test plans and procedures and identifying the appropriate tools to support a certification test and evaluation effort. They work with software developers to ensure security software development practices are implemented. VicTech translates security policy and requirements into an IA configuration implementation that considers your operational environment. By implementing world-class cybersecurity solutions and working together as a partner, VicTech helps their clients meet and exceed their objectives. And we're back. Hey, folks, we're back from What's a, a much-needed break. Um, so we're, we're going to uh, start closing stuff out here. So what's what's the next story, Matt? Next story is, uh, let's see, do we want to cover Firefox or do we want to cover um, Bechtel, the new cybersecurity lab? Oh, let's cover the new cybersecurity lab. Okay, we'll do that. All right, so global engineering construction giant Bechtel has just opened a new cybersecurity lab aimed at protecting industrial equipment and software that control facilities use, such as power plants, chemical plants, and other large-scale critical infrastructure operations. With the goal of protecting industrial control systems and supervisory control um, and data acquisition systems, SCADA systems, from cyber threats, Bechtel says the lab will leverage its design and implementing National Institute of Standards Technology Risk Management Framework. Yes. Wow. RMF solutions. <laughs> yeah, I know. You know I go crazy for the RMF. Uh, solutions for his government customers. So I quote, The ability to access and control these systems over the Internet while increasing efficiency has also exposed some vulnerabilities. There is a dark side to the Internet of Things, says Chris Hartman, who is the program director in Bechtel's government services business. And I quote, by using innovative solutions, this lab will give us the ability to test and secure critical systems in a safe environment, which translate ins 
which translates into a more secure and resilient equipment for our customers. Bechtel also announced that it has entered in a, a research arrangement with George Mason University to provide Mason students with access to the lab. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so it's awesome. Learn more at Security Week's ICS Cybersecurity Conference. And um, these partnerships are critical for universities and companies, says um, Robert Osgood, who is the director of Mason's Computer Forensics Program and a former FBI supervisory special agent in cybercrime and counterterrorism. The laboratory will provide research and internship opportunities for our students and open up potential talent pipeline for Bechtel in a rapidly growing field. I quote, whether we are talking about control systems or telecommunications infrastructure, there is a real need to develop innovative solutions that address the current world environment, said Patrick Fredericks, a program manager for the Strategic Innovation Group's SIG for Bechtel. So the merging of technology in both of these areas require a new approach that supports global deployment of integrated technology solutions on a large scale while also addressing the threats that we see now and in the future. So founded in 1898, Bechtel operates through four global businesses, infrastructure, nuclear, security and environmental, oil, gas, and chemical, and mining and metals. You know, that's great that uh, they're opening this up to, um, to students as well. You know, I was just reading an article today, again, another article that says how bad the shortage is in uh, cybersecurity skills and the cybersecurity uh, skills gap that we currently have in today's um, economy. There's mm-hmm. just not enough people. There's tons of jobs, but not enough people to, uh, to fill them. What would be cool is if we could develop some type of consortium of all these different certification bodies and match that up with academia so we could have these cyber incubators where we can bring up the new um, kind of computer network defenders, right? CNA folks, computer network attackers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we can facilitate that learning experience that will bridge the gap between academia and getting into a professional career. Um, you're right. There is a shortage, but the problem is what is the roadmap forward to close the gap? This is a good answer for industrial control systems, but that's a very specialized piece. Yeah, that's very specific. And I mean, I understand Bechtel's putting out money to do it. So therefore they're going to have it cater to their business units, right? And their cyber incubator is George Mason University, which is probably near um, Bechtel, right? I'm thinking more at a national scale, right? Having a consortium of all these different academia partners with certification bodies and professional um, kind of industry partners. And when you merge all these three things together, you will forge a professional that not only has the skill set, to get out into the real world and perform, but also has a job to match that through either internship or if they're at a graduate or postgraduate level, um, having them more at an advanced level within that um, particular organization. Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. So we, um, in the past, kind of had some dealings with UMBC. Right. Um, and, you know, that, that was great. Um, but I would like to see... Hopefully, InfoSec Sync being able to give back to the community in way of seminars, workshops, um, recording the podcast. I think just listening to this podcast, kind of like what we did at Nottingham's, um, people are able to kind of 
get a, a, a little bit of a grasp on what's happening in information security, but not only that, but it brings me and you in the room to talk to people and answer any questions that they have. The number one questions I get are, what certification should I buy right now and purchase training for? Or is the degree that I'm doing actually going to equate to something when I get out in the real world? Yeah, I, I get that one a lot too. So yeah. And it's hard to say, right? I can't say, hey, go out and get your CISSP because as soon as they get out into a professional career-like setting, um, you know, do they have the proper skills? I think it's, it's now kind of personality-driven and kind of up to the person with how motivated they are. But really, it should be simple and plain from a roadmap standpoint, almost treating like cybersecurity like a practice, such as medical or as a law practice to where we have um, a set roadmap for people to get from a, we got to coin a term here, maybe next episode we'll have it, but get from a base level where, you know, you may be coming in doing help desk or whatever, all the way up to a CIO or CTO level, right? Covering the whole gamut. So we'll see more on that. We'll have some conversations offline and maybe we'll come up with something. Good, good, good thoughts. Good thoughts. So, um, what do we have going on coming up? Anything coming up this week? Um, I don't think that we have anything coming up this week. Um, I just finalized my plans for DEF CON, so I'll be out there um, this year in Vegas. I don't know if we'll be covering the event. Um, hopefully, we'll cover Black Hat. We'll see how that all shakes out. Um, but as of right now, it's kind of quiet. Um, nothing really going on. How are things over where you're at? Um, same old stuff. Um, uh, they're getting ready for uh, the National Cyber Summit. June 6th to the 8th, so there's there's meetings and get-togethers for that um, almost almost weekly now. Um, we've got the the regular ISSA stuff going on, the regular ISACA stuff going on. So cyber community is uh, buzzing down in um, in Huntsville and uh, Rocket City. So that's what's going on. Yeah, so hopefully um, I'll be able to come down and cover the National um, Cyber Summit with you. Cool. Because last year you covered NCS. It was great. Um, Great video production and stuff like that. So hopefully this year we'll be able to get out there and and get some stuff squared away. So that'd be pretty cool. Cool, man. All right. So uh, do you hear that? I do. Oh, man. So... uh, yeah, thanks for uh, stopping by the show today uh, and listening to us. Hopefully you listen to us next week. We're the weekly podcast, so we record every week. And thanks for staying in sync, in sync with InfoSec Sync. InfoSec Sync has been brought to you by VicTech, established to provide fast and reliable technologies for the U.S. intelligence community and Department of Defense. That's V-I-K-T-E-C-H dot net.